morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, October 11th, we're studying Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. As Israel prepares to enter the promised land, Joshua sends two spies to view the land, particularly the city of Jericho. There, the two spies find help from a very unlikely source. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Tim Sandino. Pastor Sandino serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Pastor Sandino, welcome to Sharper Iron. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. As we get started today, Pastor, let's talk a little context. We just started the book of Joshua yesterday. What should we know about the book of Joshua, where the people of Israel are in their history, as we prepare to look at Joshua chapter 2 today? Yeah, so we've come to the end of uh, the ministry of Moses, and Joshua has taken over as the leader of Israel appointed by God, and, uh, and they have completed their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and they are going to attempt again now to enter into this land of promise. And um, there's a few things that I would like us to remember before we read the text or as we read the text. And uh, because some of these themes are uh, in a way repeated through our reading here of Joshua 2. Um, so think about the Exodus itself and beginning even back all the way in Egypt on uh, that night of Passover and the marking of the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. Think also, um, while we don't have the crossing of the Jordan here, we are um, approaching this crossing through the sea, um, and, uh, and that'll come in a later chapter. And then as Israel made their way into the wilderness and they were preparing to enter into the land of promise, um, they sent 12 spies into the land. So recall that and, and what they saw and the report that they came back with. And then following the 40 years, um, we had just covered here in, in the previous book, um, Israel coming into the area of Moab and the defeat of, the, of Sihon and, and Og, and, uh, and then uh, uh, the, the story of Balak and Balaam. And then, uh, and then the settling of Israel in this city in Moab of Shittim or Shittim, and, and the apostasy that Israel entered into at that place. And then uh, I would say, keep in mind always then uh, the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ and how that is foreshadowed in, in the Old Testament beautifully in many different places. And I will say specifically here in Joshua too. So as I'm listening to you bring out that background and the stories that we need to keep in mind, it, it seems like there's, there's two things that, that we can see. In some cases, we're going to see, I think, parallels. So maybe the, what happened with the Passover and the marking of a house, maybe we're going to see a bit of a parallel to that in the, the text today. But then also some contrasts where Israel had been faithless previously, 
they're actually going to start to prove themselves faithful. And we we saw that a little bit in the text yesterday in Joshua chapter 1, how they really get off to a good start here in the book of Joshua. You've got Joshua receiving the Lord's commissioning, and then he goes and talks to the officers, and they respond favorable, and he talks to the two and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan River, and they say, yeah, we're ready to go. So it's it's quite the quite the contrast. The, the people have the word of the Lord in their heart, on their lips, and it really does bear some fruit here in Joshua chapter 2, whereas before their faithlessness was all you could see. Here, I, I think, again, you, you see some faithfulness in the book of Joshua. Yeah, so they're, they're, I might use the word hope, and, uh, and that actually comes up in our text, although it's not part of our English translation, and I'll point it out when we get there. All right. Are we ready to look at the text then? Please. All right. So we're in Joshua chapter 2 today. Do you want to go through the whole chapter at once, or, or you want me to pause partway through? Um, well, if you just want to read it, and then we get the whole right. story, um, because much of what we're going to talk about, I think, comes in the earliest parts, and we can go back to it. All right. Sounds good. So Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. 
Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills, and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills, and passed over, and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. That's our text for today. That's Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. All right, so uh, Pastor Sandino, you mentioned at the outset, one of the things we want to keep in mind from previous Old Testament context is this place where they're sending the spies from, Shittim. Remind us a little bit of, of that context. Yeah, so Shittim is, um, it was a city of Amorites, and um, and as the, the um, Israelites came into this eastern side of the Jordan into the land of Moab um, and they set up here um, they they began adopting the Baal worships of the people there and so in in Numbers 25 as it talks about it uh, they apostatized they turned from God and they and they began to turn to these uh, idols and worship them and certainly we've seen this a number of times and we'll see it again um, among the Israelites as they get into the land. Um, but here now, we might see it, I'm gonna use a big word, <laughs> recapitulation is, is the playing over of, of things in the same location where the, now, as you had mentioned, they are being faithful to God and they're putting their trust in God. Whereas before they failed, um, they had the same opportunity to trust God, but they turned away from God and they followed after the people that were there. And, uh, and so, it is a doing over, in a sense, uh, so that the people can demonstrate their faithfulness and God can show his mercy. Well, and, and that doing over, that recapitulation, is not just in the place, but actually in the, the action, which I suppose we could have taken first from this place, Shatim. Joshua sends two spies, which this also is a repeat of a, a previous account where the people failed. Yeah, so... Back in uh, Numbers 13, um, it wasn't from Moab, but south in Paran, right, um, that they sent in the 12 spies to, to uh, spy out the land so that they know might, what they might be looking at. And um, ironically, Joshua was one of those spies. Um, and as they came back to the people, uh, as you will recall, 10 of them gave a bad report. They, they, uh, they talked about the, the lushness of the land, but they feared the people, the giants, um, because uh, they were much larger. And we see the same thing in Shittim, that it was a land where there were some large people as well, a land of giants. Uh, Joshua, along with Caleb, the two of the 12, came back with a favorable report and said, you know, let's go do it. And, um, and so this was the beginning of their 40 years of wandering. So Joshua being a remnant now of that generation that had passed away is now leading the people. Um, interesting in our text is that he sends these spies secretly and, um, and on, we'll all think about it. Obviously spies are secret, right? That's the whole point of spying out the land as you go in secretly. Um, but he, considering what happened the previous time? I would say that here, when he sends them secret, he keeps it secret also from the Israelites. So that if the report that comes back is not favorable, 
then it's not reported to everybody. And, um, and so, yes, the spies are sent in secret to uh, the citizens of Jericho, but also sent in secret, hidden from uh, the people of Israel as well, so that when they come back, the report comes to Joshua alone. And of course, as we've heard, they do give a, a good and faithful report this time, and so that it will go forth into all Israel, as we'll see in the coming chapters. But I appreciate you you bringing that out. It just strikes me with these these recapitulations. This is one of the reasons why it is important for us to keep in mind accounts like this from Scripture, so that we might. And this maybe I don't know. It sounds such, such a colloquial way of saying it, but so that we would learn the lesson, you know. I mean, so that you you get back to that same place where you were, and the first time you you know the unfaithfulness, so that when you get there the second time, you you might do what is faithful and, and do what is God pleasing. It's it's important for us to remember what's happened previously, so that we might learn from it, and and seek after God and His Word the next time around, rather than fall into faithlessness again. So. Let me build on that if I can. So um, this is the whole point of Jesus Christ, right? He is the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam is successful. He is faithful to God and thus provides for the redemption of mankind. Um, now, not that, that Christianity is simply a moral religion, but it teaches us as well that in our failures, when we sin, um, we are confessors. We confess our failure and we trust again in the redemption that is ours, and we go forward uh, faithfully trusting that God will enable us to overcome the next time. So in that sense, we're always doing that redo or that re uh, that do over again. Mm. Well, and, and I like what you said, and, and always looking to Christ as our Savior, the one who did all of these things perfectly in our place to cover us with his righteousness, so that then, you know, we might live in that righteousness, you know, doing that, you know, learning from the from our previous sins and and from God's word and what it teaches us, but always putting our trust in Christ as the perfect substitute, the one who did all these things perfectly in our place. And, and certainly we're going to see opportunities to look at that in this text. So you've, you've got these two spies sent by Joshua secretly. He sends them into the land, especially the city of Jericho. I think in the minds of many Christians, Jericho is, is famous precisely because of what we're reading here and in the coming chapters when the walls come crumbling down. But any, any thoughts on, on Jericho as a city? It seems to be a pretty important entry into the promised land. Well, so Israel right now is on the east side of the Jordan. So picture yourself just north of the Dead Sea. And uh, Jericho is the first fortified city that they're going to encounter as they cross the Jordan and come into the land. Um, so it becomes the first city, obviously, that they need to conquer before they can move further into the land. Um, if you're looking for something else about the name of Jericho or something, I mean, today no. we can't actually place it. We don't have the remnants of Jericho that I'm aware of. And, and so there's speculation about its exact location and stuff like that. But um, I think it's just a practical thing. And it certainly becomes uh, one of the huge stories of, of uh, the Bible that we've all learned from our childhood is the, the crumbling of the walls. That's right. That's right. So spoiler alert, that's where we're headed. With Jericho here. <laughs> so, so they go into Jericho and this is where, I mean, the, the text in Joshua too, if, if we've heard it so many times that maybe it doesn't surprise us, but, but this is where, wait, 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 where do they go? They go to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. This is where the text, I think, takes a, a surprising turn. Yeah. 
so I did a Google search. There's no Motel 6 in Jericho. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I'm not going to say I'm really intimate in what um, the uh, housing situation was in Jericho. But, you know, the, the travelers would oftentimes, you know, just kind of stay in relatives' homes or, or you know, in the, in the nice climate, maybe even just sleep outside. And, um, and so the, the idea of a prostitute's house or even just a house of ill repute, let's say, um, is you can be anonymous there because um, the people going there don't want to be noticed and they're, they're not there to notice other people, right? And so um, I would see it as kind of a, a logical place to go to kind of stay out of sight. Um, we know throughout the scriptures that people are recognized by how they dress and by their accents and so forth like that, even among Israelites themselves. And, and so the, these two spies are going to stand out. And so they try to conceal themselves a little bit while they investigate. Um, so I would approach it in that respect. It's not, the text does not lead us um, in any direction like they're, they're there to have a, a reveling time. Um, right. It's just they're looking for a place to be inconspicuous so that they might spy out the city. Yeah, I think that's a very, very helpful explanation of, of likely what is going on here. That makes good sense. It fits with the text that we've got and the, the rest of the witness of Scripture. So they're, they're looking for a place where they can be inconspicuous. They go to the house of Rahab. They lodge there. But it doesn't, it doesn't work that well because the king finds out. People, people there somehow recognize that these are these are Israelites and they're here to spy. And so this is where now I think the text even becomes even more surprising because Rahab turns out to be an ally. So let's take us into, you know, they're found out what the king asks and how Rahab responds. Um, yeah. So I'm going to back up just a moment here because well, that's fine. Because while we talk about maybe the logic of the two spies and trying to find an inconspicuous place, as we see this play out, we can see that this was all divinely appointed and and in everything works as god had designed it to work and uh, so while we can maybe attribute some skill to these spies uh, we contribute or we attribute the entirety of the uh, the narrative to to uh, god himself um and so yes that's real helpful yeah, yeah. That's, that's real helpful to recognize the hand of god in in sending these men to this house not just any house of ill repute but to this particular prostitute who turns out to be quite faithful, as we'll see. So yeah. go, keep going. Yeah, so that God would even send them to a prostitute's house seems like very illogical to all of us. Right. You know, I mean, in the in the ways of the world, it might seem wise, but why would God make use of those that are on the outskirts of society, right? And But that's what we see in Scripture all the time. Um. So now, as I've talked about all these other things, I've forgotten exactly what your question well, was. Well, so let's let's move into the let's move into this back and forth. The, you've got some messengers who go to the king. These two Israelite men, despite their best efforts, have been recognized. Message comes to the king. He thinks they're in the house of Rahab, and rightly so. But Rahab doesn't end up giving them up. Talk talk about that kind of yeah. So exchange so ob happens. so obviously they're going to stand out. They're noticed. Um, you know, and uh, they are, somebody did see them go into Rahab's house. And so the king wants to investigate. They need to figure out what's going on because they know the Israelites are on the other side of the river. And, um, but she doesn't. Um, she actually deceives the king and his uh, um, uh, soldiers that he sends, his officials. 
and um, and and I kind of liken this to to uh, Peter in the book of Acts. You know, we must obey God rather than man. She is demonstrating a faith in God that exceeds her fear of man, even her own people, and and it plays back um, to even the the crossing of the Red Sea in the song of Moses after that, that, that the people sang in, um, um, in Exodus and, uh, where, where it talks about the fear of, uh, uh, the leaders of Moab and so forth, how this word of God's action gets out. And so we have all that God did in Egypt that is now, I'll say, legendary and heard among all the peoples. And what God has done for the people of Israel among the kings of, you know, Sihon and Og. And and all of this has put a huge trepidation upon the people in Canaan, and here in particular, Jericho, and uh, among the Canaanites. And, uh, and this is what Rahab reveals to the spies. So she reveals something that maybe they wouldn't have noticed if they were just looking around, is that now they have somebody on the inside that can reveal the morale of the people, how, how they are demoralized because of the, the renown of Israel's God. Can, can before, we, before we get too far to what Rahab says to the spies, can we talk a little bit more about what Rahab says to the, to the king and the king's messengers there? I, I think, and this is, I, I don't want to go too, I'm too far, but I think there's there's something there. You mentioned what Peter says in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men, right. which I, I find helpful because it, on the on the surface, I mean, you know, Rahab lies to the king. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I, I didn't know anything. I, they, they, they're already gone, and that's quite not true. So on the surface, she's just outright lying. I think the the parallel from Acts chapter 5 is helpful. Another another text that I thought was would be helpful to think about too, perhaps, is in in the book of Exodus in the first chapter, where you have the Hebrew midwives who are who are supposed to kill the Hebrew baby boys, right. and they 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 tell you know I mean they say well well we don't get there in time Pharaoh to to do anything the Hebrew wives have already had their their babies by the time we get there that there's also a I mean we we want to be careful with this so that we don't say something like you know the the ends justify the means. But I, I do think there's there's something here about you know that there's a fifth commandment issue at play that that both Rahab and those Hebrew midwives have in mind, and I I do think what you said about about you know we must obey God rather than men is is ultimately what's going on because it with what Rahab says she's doing this based on faith in the true God and not out of fear for those who might harm her physically. So I don't I just wanted to to think about a little bit more before going too far from it. Okay, well. I mean, I guess if, if I were to kind of draw into our own context, um, I could liken it maybe to um, a clerical vow as you hear a confession mm-hmm. that you will not divulge those things. And um, even to the point of, say, being put on the stand for uh, a capital crime, that those sins that had been uh, confessed unto you are not going to be divulged, even if you receive punishment on account of it. Um, and then... Uh, while we don't live in, and I'm going to say, in a, in a truly persecuted uh, uh, world where the where the church itself is under persecution, um, there comes a point where you hide, right? Mm-hmm. If you are going to be faithful to God in the midst of a of a world that is just going to slaughter all Christians, it doesn't mean you run into it, but you you 
um, I guess I'll use the word deceive. You hide um, mm. your faith to, in a sense that, that the church can continue. So the idea of the catacombs and so forth. Um, mm. So that your worship uh, still continues, the gathering of the Christians, but you don't out everybody so that everybody's hauled off to jail or worse. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, just thinking through the book of Acts again, you, you see evidence of something like that happening in, in Acts chapter 12, where the apostle James is killed, and then Peter's put in prison. And you do see the church there in Jerusalem hiding. When Peter goes back to them after his, you know, after the Lord releases him from prison by sending an angel, you know, he goes to that church, but yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't give them up. He doesn't give up the faithful people of God. He doesn't betray the, the faithful people of God to those who would hurt them. And yeah, and although it, it may seem well, well, he lied. No, no, he didn't. He he's telling, he's protecting God's people, as being faithful to God, rather than men. I, and I think, yeah, I think what you said about the Acts chapter five reference is probably the best way to, to think about this. Yeah. So, and I, I, go ahead. yeah. So I was going to say, looking at it differently. So when we talk about hiding, than than in the upper room with yeah. the disciples on the day of the resurrection, they they were hiding out of fear of man, yeah. not in faithfulness to God. Right, right. Where, whereas in, in this case, yeah, Rahab is hiding these men out of faithfulness to God. The Hebrew midwives did the same thing in Exodus chapter 1. You see it in the, in the early church as well. And so, yeah, we have Rahab as, a, as an example of faith in the Old Testament. But we're going we're gonna to go ahead and take our break and pick up more of that on the other side. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at Joshua chapter 2 with Pastor Tim Sandino. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 11th. We're studying Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 24 with Pastor Tim Tim Sandineau. He serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Pastor Sandineau, prior to the break, we, were, we had started to talk about Rahab and her faithful response. She is responding out of faith in God, not toward fear in man. And a good chunk of this text, right, the, the heart of it probably, is her confession of faith. And you had started to, to dig into that for us. She she actually does some of the work of the spies, it sounds like. She gives them the the, the down low on what's happening there in Jericho. And in so doing, she she begins to make a marvelous confession of who the true God is. Take us into to Rahab's words. Yeah, I'm, you make an interesting point. She does do the work of the spies, doesn't she? She's almost got this written report for them when they show up and says, just take this back with you. Um, but whereas all of Jericho is in fear of, of what God has done, they don't turn to him in faith, 
but Rahab does. And she makes this wonderful confession. She even uses the divine name, Yahweh. And, um, and she, she puts out almost in creedal form what God has done and her confidence that the same is, is going to befall Jericho. And she looks for mercy for her family and for herself. And she, she talks to these two spies. And here she talks to them as representatives of Israel, but then representatives of God. And they make an oath with her, a covenant with her. And um, in, in that sense, they, they're speaking almost like an absolution that, that this is going to be true. And, and it is a rather blood oath because they put their own lives on the line. As long as your faith continues and you, you do what we ask here, that is everybody that you want saved comes into the household, you remain in the household, and you put this uh, crimson or red cord in the window, nobody will touch you and you will be saved. What strikes me about what happens with Rahab and what she says and how she reacts is I, I think within this text you see the two different reactions that are always there to the things God does and the things God says in his word. On the one hand, you have Rahab who has you know heard all the same things that everybody else in Jericho has about what the Lord has done, about who he is, and she responds in faith. But the great majority of the people of Jericho, I mean, there's there's no other indication outside of Rahab and her family that we have a faithful response. Everybody else, they hear the same thing, but rather than responding in faith, they harden their hearts further. They respond in unbelief and are, you know, trying to kill these two Israelite spies and do everything they can to prevent Israel from advancing any further. It's I guess it's, it's just striking to see how that same word and same event that had happened in Egypt provokes those two entirely different responses, which we, you know, I, I, we, still, that, we still see that today when we proclaim the word of God. People respond in, in both ways. And so often, as is the case here in Jericho, it seems that less respond in a faithful way than, than in the unbelieving way. Correct. Yeah. So the word of God always is a word of promise. A promise of reward for faith, but a promise of punishment for rejection. And, um, and you know, we don't control how people hear it. We, we proclaim what the Word says, and then the Holy Spirit does His thing. And uh, when people respond in faith, then that, that Word is received in all of its sweet goodness of, of promise of redemption in life. Uh, but when the Word is rejected... Um, uh, when it's looked upon as uh, not for me, that is, in unbelief, then the only thing that is seen there is the curse and, um, and not the promise of life that, that comes from faith or obedience in that respect. Mm. Another thing that, that stood out to me about Rahab, and this I think this may be the first time in reading this text that this has really occurred to me, is when she begins to make this oath, this deal is, is perhaps too too colloquial again, uh, with the with the spies, it strikes me that that she she begins to serve in an intercessory role. I think you know, I mean, not only does she want to to have her life spared, but she wants the lives of her her family members spared. And it, I mean, just to the you you see how she has come to this faith in the God of Israel and knows who He is. And now she wants to bring her family into that that same faith in the God of Israel, and so she she pleads for her own family as well. 
but that's just another thing you see the the faithful people of God do throughout the scriptures is intercede on behalf of of those they love. I, I, that's just I, I never struck me before about Rahab, but I think you see that in her her example here. Oh yeah, so I'm going to call her a redeemer here, right? She Ooh, she becomes like the one who redeems her family, and and this this plays out significantly because she eventually will marry Salmon, who is the leader of Judah and becomes the mother of Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And, um, and so we see all of this play out and, and hopefully everybody listening uh, also hears the fact that now this is the lineage of Jesus, who is mankind's redeemer, the redeemer of creation. And so we see this redemption as we saw uh, God redeeming Israel, and in particular the firstborn um, in Israel, and thus working this redemption constantly. We see it played out in a, in a, a more localized uh, setting here of this one household, but then it helps us then see the fullness of the redemption also that comes in Jesus Christ. So to talk more about how what Rahab says and what Rahab does points us to Jesus. You know, I mean, we, we said earlier Rahab may seem to be a surprising character to, to be involved in this account, but she's certainly stood out as, as a shining light, and she becomes important in the New Testament. I think you've already hinted at some of the things, at least. How does, how does Rahab function? You know, how do we see her show up le- elsewhere in the New Testament as an example of faith? Yeah, well, I'll begin with Matthew, right? She, so she's in the lineage of Jesus as the great, great grandfather of uh, David, the king. But then, you know, in the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, he puts forward Rahab too and, and, uh, and uh, I, I guess highlights her faith, right, as one who put her trust in God. And then even James uh, in the second chapter of his epistle talks about Rahab in the sense that her faith is demonstrated in what she does. And so she becomes an example um, to, to all of the New Testament Christians of a, a faithful confession, both in word and in action. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's striking to see how she shows up both in Hebrews and in James there as, as one who has faith and then whose faith is made active in works as we see here in Joshua chapter 2. And what a, what a marvelous thing that even at this late hour, the Lord is still bringing people into his salvation. I mean, we, we know that like back in the book of Genesis, the Lord had told Abram about, you know, the, the sins of the Amorites are going to be filled up. And, and now, you know, the people of God are getting ready to drive out all these inhabitants of the land for all of their abominations, their idolatry, their wickedness. We heard about that in Deuteronomy, and, and it's about to happen. But even at this 11th hour, so, you know, to, to use the image from Jesus' parable, even at this 11th hour, the Lord is still bringing Rahab and now her family into salvation. And what a, what a marvelous thing to see God's desire to save, even as he's about to carry out certainly the, the destruction that has been deserved, Yet he still is is working out his his proper will, which is is his great desire to save, and he does so for Rahab. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is the purpose of all the great works of God, is it not? Is to demonstrate that He is God, and and to bring all to repentance and and faith in Him, 
And, um, and so you talk about the 11th hour, you know, so the, the banquet um, that is described by Jesus in the parable that, you know, when those that were initially invited don't come, you know, the servants are sent out to gather more and then they're sent out again to gather more. And here we see God gathering uh, Rahab, the prostitute and her household. And she becomes more than just a byword or, or just a scene in the scripture, but she becomes an essential part of the whole redemptive process uh, that God sets forth in time. Right. And and not only, I mean, and we should also point out that Rahab is a Gentile. This is another key theme for the, for the Old Testament and New Testament, is that God, his desire is not just to save the family of Abraham, but his desire is that Abraham's family would be a blessing to all nations. And so Rahab coming to faith in the God of Israel is, is one of the most wonderful examples of that in the Old Testament, that the Lord is out to save all peoples, even, even those who are, are not a part of Israel genetically, but here Rahab is becoming a part of Israel by faith. Right. Yeah. So I was recently uh, studying Amos 6 in preparation for a sermon. And uh, there, uh, as God is speaking um, uh, to the people of Israel and and speaking woes, but he calls them first of the nations. And the whole point of that is not that they are the only nation to whom God loves, but they are the ones through whom God brings the word, the ones through whom God is revealing himself to the other nations for their redemption and for their salvation. Hmm. And let's talk, and I'm not sure, I think we've, we've probably touched on this, but maybe we can go into a little more detail. So this, I mean, we've talked about Rahab is she's come to faith from her words. What does she, what does she believe about Yahweh, the God of Israel? Okay. Well, I'm looking at my Bible here, but, but certainly she confesses the things that he has done. And, um, right. And she, you might have something in mind already, I guess. Well, not nothing in particular. Just to, to think about what she says, because when you think about what we've what we've heard previously about the Lord, and obviously the people of Israel, you know, they've heard the Lord's word from the the lips of Moses. They've just listened to his sermon in Deuteronomy. For you know, you kind of wonder, well, what 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 do other people know about this God? And and clearly, Rahab has heard that you know he's he's done all these marvelous things. But she she broadens that, I think, and she she starts confessing God as the not just the God of Israel, but the God over all. Like she she has a, a broader conception, it seems, than you might expect, you know, just a, your average pagan to have about the Lord. And so, I mean, the fact that she mentions that God is the the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath, He is He's your God. I don't know. It just it just strikes me that she's got this very broad confession of who the Lord is, rather than just some sort of a a narrow tribal deity. Right. I guess that's that's kind of what, what I was yeah. thinking about. Yeah, so most of the, the pagan gods were local gods, right? They, they, they were gods for this people, but they were not necessarily gods in the, in the view of the people that could, could exercise their authority over a different people. And so she's recognizing what, what we see of all uh, pagan leaders that do turn to, the, to Yahweh in the scriptures is this confession that while they and so here we don't see necessarily her abandonment of her local gods we recognize that she is confessing that yahweh is the god over all 
you know, even if she still has a pantheon, which, you know, the text doesn't lead us to think that or but doesn't lead us away from it either. And um, but she does recognize that God is not a local God. He's not a God for this one people, but he is the God over heaven and earth. In other words, he is the God that that exercises his authority, his dominion over all of creation. And um, and, you know, of course, it's the same that we confess in the creed, right? God of heaven and earth. Right, right. And she and she trusts this God to be the one she needs to be attached to him. She knows that there's no help outside of him such that she she stakes everything that she has and everything that her family has on being a part of this God and his people so that she she puts all of her hope in that one basket by by making this deal with these two spies. She knows that the only one that can deliver her from death, the only hope she has for life is actually with this God as a part of his people, and it's not in the city of Jericho. So any any more on Rahab that, that we missed before we move on to, at least in her, her words, before we move on to what actually transpires as with the Scarlet Cord? Um, I, I would have probably only add, as you were talking, it got me thinking about the Curie, because it is what we do, is hmm. we are, we are yeah. pleading for mercy before the one God who can show us mercy, the one God who can save us from our destruction. And, uh, and as, it is what Rahab recognizes, that there is no uh, hope, there is no rescue from this destruction except through Yahweh. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Kyrie and Lord have mercy, because that's, as you were talking earlier, my mind had gone a little bit to that, uh, to the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus in Matthew 15, and, and she prays, I believe, you know, son of David, have mercy upon me. And, and she, too, just throws everything she's got on the mercy of Jesus, much like Rahab is throwing everything she's got on the mercy of the Lord. And, and you know, just that's all she that's the only hope she has. That's the only hope that Rahab has. So they, they throw their hope on on the Lord. Right. So with that, then, so Rahab's going to help them get out. She lives in the city wall. These, these are very fortified walls. And again, we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to the coming chapters where those walls are actually going to be brought down by the Lord. So she's living in the city walls. She sends them out. She gives them instructions. And then the men give her, and what I've used is a sign by which they're going to know which house they've promised to spare. So so talk about Rahab sending them out and then the the sign that they've worked out to uh, for this arrangement. Yeah, so after Rahab deceives the officials and then she says, hey, they took off already and they go out. The gates are shut just in case, right? And if they are still in, they're not getting out. And uh, she sends them off on their wild goose chase. And then she tells the spies, hey, go hide in the hills uh, in the other direction for three days. Because in that time, they will return and then they won't be looking for you any longer. Um, and, you know, while I'm not going to say this is um, specifically a foreshadowing of the three-day rest in the tomb. It's one of those things when you see something specifically spelled out in scripture and it reminds you of that. It's always a good thing. But it is, um, I guess you could say during these three days, there's this unknown period. It is as if the spies are dead because they are hidden, they are gone. And then they're, after the three days, they come out and they have the good report. And so it should always point us then to the three-day rest in the tomb, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and our own redemption and justification before God. 
And, um, and then they make this arrangement between Rahab and these spies that, that she'll hang this uh, red or crimson cord uh, in her window, the same window that they departed through in the wall. So we can see the divine appointment by God that her house just happens to be on the wall and everything else. And so, and, and at the beginning, before you read Joshua 2, I, I told our listeners to remember the Exodus and, uh, and the passing over of the angel of death uh, and the sign that was put on the doorposts and the lintel of the blood of the lamb uh, so that the the eldest in that household uh, would not be claimed by that angel of death, but is redeemed by that blood. And so we see here, this cord too is put in the window um, in a similar fashion. No, it's not painted on the, on the windows, post or lintel, but in, it is a reminder to us of the, the manner in which God does provide this redemption. And it was going to be a sign to uh, the soldiers of Israel when they come that they are not to harm anybody in that household and uh, and so Rahab brings her father's household into that place um, I would like to talk just briefly about the cord because it is an interesting thing if if you start looking at the original language of the Hebrew the way that the Septuagint translates it and then how it appears in our English um, the word that we translate in the English to cord is only translated in this one place in in these two verses of 16 and 18 or 18 and um, 21 and as cord everywhere else in the scripture and it's used in a number of other places it's translated as hope uh, the Septuagint seems as I look at it to insert an extra word so that we get both where uh, you use the word sign hope and and cord in the Septuagint so that our English translation kind of kind of takes that connotation and the understanding of uh, the early Jews uh, and their understanding of the Hebrew. So it probably was a cord that was put in the window, but it was put there as the hope of Rahab. She, she put her hope in the sign that is in the word of promise that is in that sign that her house would be passed over, that it would not be destroyed, that all there would be spared when Israel does take the city. And um, so it becomes a beautiful, I'll use the recapitulation again, a do-over of what was done in Exodus, you know, not in the sense that it, it, it uh, was making more complete, but that we see the same thing happening. But then also a foreshadowing for us of the sign of our hope. Um, where, you know, we can use a symbol that we use, a cross or a crucifix in the church that, that exemplifies the, the crucifixion, uh, the blood on the doorpost, the cord in the window of our hope that shows us the mercy of God for us that we too shall be saved. Um, it, is, um, it is seen there then in the signs that we have in the liturgy, the, the word, the sacraments, um, where God's word is attached to these elements, these physical things of water, bread, and wine, whereby we receive the very thing promised, our redemption, um, our salvation. The fact that we, all who are placed under that sign, shall be saved. 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much there in that scarlet cord, and I I, I think the way that you've explained it and attached it to the the Passover has been has been helpful because it's it's more than just the the color of this cord. I've I've heard some say you know you've got the scarlet, the red, the crimson cord, which is a reminder of the blood of the lamb or ultimately of Jesus, of course. And I've always found it a little. And not that that may not be there, you know, that that might be something, but I've always found that a little bit superficial, whereas the way that you've attached it to, you know, what happens in the, the painting on the on the, the doorpost and the marking of the house and, and being marked with Christ is such a such a bigger way of thinking about it that I, I, I really like the connections so that, I mean, and it, it makes a lot of sense to me that these two Israelite spies, they they may remember or they've heard what what Moses taught them about that night in Exodus chapter 12 and they're thinking okay how are we going to distinguish this well we can't have her paint blood on the outside of her of the wall but we can hang this cord but just that that marking as God's people I mean I, I think it's such a, a great connection and certainly pointing us forward to the way that we are marked in Christ such that death passes over us and again that that they are uh, they are saved by being you know, in this house, if anybody, if anybody leaves this house, the spies say their blood's on their own heads, but in this house, you're safe. I mean, that's, that's precisely what happens in the Passover. That's what still happens for us as the people of God. You know, if you, in this house, in the house of God, the family of God marked with the blood of Jesus and holy baptism and and receiving it into our, our very mouths and holy communion, you're safe there. Apart from those gifts, there's there's no life. I mean, I just uh, the connections there, I think, are, are just so beautiful. Yeah, I would agree, and it, and it's in the words too of the spies that that they put their own lives on the line. That that if anybody in this house is harmed, then we forfeit our lives, and they do so because they are emissaries. Then, right, ambassadors of Israel. This is this is the promise of the nation, not just of the spies. And then we see the nation as God's son representing God to the world. This is God's promise. And, and we do see it played out, right? For it is his son that does forfeit his life for us so that we might be redeemed. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So what a, what a beautiful thing. So they, they depart and, and they go out the city. Rahab lets them down by a different, I would assume a different rope that goes down the wall they do what she says. They get back to Joshua. Give us those those last couple of verses as this text rounds out. Well, so like verses uh, twenty one and, and following. Yeah. So well, this is her confession again. According to your words, so be it. Which would yeah. be like Amen, right? Yes, yes, this shall be so. Um, and then she sends them away, and they depart, right? And then she does. She follows through on her side of the deal. She puts the cord in the window, right? Um, it, and it doesn't necessarily mean maybe right then, but at least prior to the assault. Um, and then we talked about the three days uh, that they that they do hide out in the hills while the pursuers are, are looking in the other direction. And then the two men return. They come down and, and they pass back over the Jordan and they come to Joshua. And, and then they too make this wonderful confession. Truly, right? And, and how do we translate that in the New Testament when Jesus says truly, truly, or verily, verily? Again, we say amen, amen, right? So truly the Lord, that is Yahweh, has given all the land into our hands. So they come back with this wonderful report. They come back with the same report that Joshua 
and Caleb came back 40 years early with earlier with and um, and and they they kind of kind of just hand over Rahab's report right they the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us and what they mean by that is not just because we are so intimidating but because of the Lord who goes with us right it's because of the things that God has done it goes right back to the the song of the Israelites in Genesis after passing through the Red Sea that these great things of God has struck fear into the people of the land so that they will melt they will tremble at the sight of Israel because God is with them it's you know and again I'll draw another parallel that I hadn't thought about before but this is our parallel the the devil melts before us not because you know we're great and mighty and it's because i do my exercises but it's because as you say we are placed under the sign of christ it is his cross that we bear upon our forehead and upon our heart in in holy baptism it is his name that that is our banner that we are are clothed with his righteousness and there's nothing that the devil can do except tremble right this is the whole idea that one mighty word can fell him in in uh martin luther's great hymn yeah, that's right. That's right. What a what a wonderful connection to make, Pastor Sandino. Any any further thoughts? Help us to to wrap this up. We have about a minute left. Again, how does how does Joshua two point us toward Christ? Well, in many ways, I think the whole chapter points us to Christ because it's a chapter about redemption, about a redemption of of Rahab and her household, but about the continuing redemption of Israel itself and the placing of them in that land of promise, the place where God has promised will be their possession. Um, And so for us, it, it becomes a part of our redemptive narrative, our history that leads us to our promised land that place of heaven where we too shall reside in in a place where god is in our midst where we are surrounding him and um you know it's 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 one of those snapshots out of scripture that in a in a way just tells the whole of the redemptive process that that comes to play in all of the scriptures for us Pastor Tim Sandino is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine, helping us today with Joshua 2, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Sandino, thanks for being our guest today. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.